listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. I can't believe that it is already the last week of the year 2016. It is a little frightening and overwhelming to see how fast the time flies. The Bible tells us to think of time preciously, and it makes me question if I have lived my life the past year using my precious time to live for Jesus. On the other hand, we can rejoice in the fact that the time is moving by quickly because that means that we are closer to the day that Jesus will return. I believe that if we start living today using our precious time for Jesus, then there will be no reason for regrets in our lives. What happened in our past is no longer important. What is important is how we will use the time given to us now. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17 says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This passage is telling us that if we are careful about how we live and realize how important it is to be careful, then we should be wise to make the most of our precious time. I hope that we think about what is the best way to spend our time, to do the will of Jesus, and to live our lives for Him. Our program today is a special end-of-the-year program. First, let me go over the results of the survey that took place in October for the year 2016. Thank you very much to all who participated in the survey. There were five people that participated in the survey online and one person that completed the mail-in survey. The overall consensus was that our listeners listen to our programs regularly and that they are pleased to think about God as they listen to our various programs. There were some who asked questions on the survey. There was a question about creating a Spanish program. We do have plans to begin a Spanish program and are looking for any volunteers that are able to speak both English and Spanish. If you're interested, please call or email our office. There was another question about doing a program for teens and discussing faith and temptations in school. There was also a question regarding a program about prayer. We currently do not have any plans to begin a program for teenagers, but are willing to start the program if we are given the opportunity. A program about prayer was released in April of 2015. We will be happy to mail out a CD with that program. Please contact us at the office at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you again for participating in our survey. We will be right back after this song. When the music fades all is stripped away And I simply come Longing just to bring Something that's of worth That will bless your heart 
not what you have required. You search much deeper within, past the way things appear. You're looking into my showing interest in heart and soul gospel ministries. First, as many of you already have realized, the name heart and soul gospel ministries was taken from a scripture in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 tells us, 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is why the purpose of Heart and Soul Ministries is to love the Lord with all your might, hearts and souls, as God requested from us. That is why we began our ministry with this name. Just when we were about to begin our ministry, one of our American supporters stated that it's great to see that the name shows how much the ministry loves the Lord with all our might, heart and souls. They also suggested that since the word soul sounds very close to Seoul, the capital of South Korea, we should name the ministry using the spelling of the capital city Seoul to show that it is a ministry geared toward Koreans. We thought that was a great idea, and that's how we got the name Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries was formed by first-generation immigrants to the United States for the purpose of loving our Trinity God with all their hearts, might, and souls. Every ministry has their own systems and methods. There are ministries that actually help with daily needs of life, educate others as they teach them the gospel, or train and support missionaries to send them to different locations. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries uses the broadcasting method to spread the gospel. That is why there is a small difference between us and other ministries. Other radio stations that have the goal of releasing the news in the area play the role of media and press. While our main mission is to spread the gospel, Heart and Soul Ministries is not affected by the media or press because our sole purpose is to spread the gospel. We are a ministry. The purpose of a ministry is to spread the word of God, our Creator, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came to save us from our sins. That is why we record this good news and send it out to everyone to hear. We have volunteers that donate their time, talent, materials, and hearts to fulfill the purpose of this ministry. Our first priority is for all our listeners to be able to listen to the words of God and for us to come up with ways for more people to hear the good news. I hope that all of you were able to understand the meaning behind our name, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to call our office. As I mentioned before, we are a ministry formed by the Korean people. Then why do we need an English program? When we began the English program, many people asked us why we needed an English program in the first place. They told us that there's so many gospel radio programs that we could listen to living in the United States. And there is no real need for us to begin an English program. I married my husband, who was a second-generation Korean-born in the United States and is not familiar with the Korean language. The purpose of beginning an English program was for families like ours, so that a family member that was not familiar with the Korean language could grow and live in one faith together as they listen to the same program in both languages. That is why we launched our English program in 2011. 
Our English program has many pastor sermons and a variety of segments and hosts that participate. The main segment is made by translating a program already done in Korean into English. We have Korean volunteers that first translate Korean into English. Even though they are both fluent in Korean and English, there are sometimes language differences that make it hard for them to translate into English perfectly. That is why we have American volunteers that read over the translation to make sure that it is correct. When the American volunteers send us the corrected document, then the host records and edits the program until finished. After the program is finished, it is copied onto a CD each week. Before copies of the CD are made, we have one American volunteer that goes through the program to make sure that there are no other mistakes. This is how our English program is developed for all of our listeners to hear. The best part of working in the gospel ministry is to see how each person's work comes together as one and with one purpose in mind. That one purpose is to lift Jesus Christ's name on high and to fulfill His will. I believe that God will be pleased to see all this happen. If any of you want to participate in the English ministry, please contact our office anytime.
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is hope for the family, based on Ephesians 5:22 through 33. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. Let's just look at the top level, three things we learn about Christian marriage here. The premise, the purpose, and the penultimacy of Christian marriage. The premise of it, the purpose of it, and the penultimacy of it. First, the premise. Now, notice I put uh, in the text that was read tonight, uh, verse 21. And verse 21 says, Submit to each other, one another, out of reverence for Christ. Now, even though that's a standalone sentence in the English translation, it's actually the last clause of a long sentence that Paul began in verse 18, and it's actually about the fullness of the Spirit. So, for example, oh, well, not for example, so let me just read you that whole, that whole uh, sentence. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord... Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's describing a life, a life of the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father for everything, and so forth. And finally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, here's what we need to realize. Paul does not change the subject when he gets to marriage. So there's no indication, there's no change. Paul doesn't say, well, that's enough about the Holy Spirit, now let's talk about marriage. No, what he's describing with regard to the relationship of a husband and wife is a a subheading under the broader heading. This is what life in the Spirit looks like. And if you're filled with the Spirit, this is what your marriage looks like. Now, here's why that's really important. For Paul, being filled with the Spirit is to have the gospel driven into the very center of your being so that rather than just abstract doctrines, it becomes a living reality and affects your whole life. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. If you say, well, where do you get that? Sometime turn, if you would, not now, uh, to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is talking again about this life. And he says in chapter 3 of Colossians, he says, speak to one another in songs. Make melody in your heart to the Lord. Do everything for the glory of God. Always have thanks in your heart toward the Father. In other words, the same kind of life. In fact, in, in, fact, in chapter 3 of Colossians, he even goes on and talks about husbands and wives and, and parents and children. But the Spirit isn't even mentioned in chapter 3 of Colossians. Instead, at the center of it, Paul says, Have the Word of God dwell in you richly. The message of the word of God, the gospel, have that dwell in you, in you, richly. Not just understand it or believe it or, you know, affirm it. In other words, to be filled with the spirit and to have the gospel creating enormous joy and awe in the center of your heart is the same thing. It's the same thing. Now, what verse 21 is saying then is one of the effects of the gospel is that you, you serve one another. In other words, the gospel erodes the normal human self-centeredness. So, for example, one of the things the gospel does is it tells you you're a lot worse than you think. 
That's one of the first messages of the gospel. Uh, the gospel says, oh, you can never clean up your life. There's no way you're going to be saved that way. And no amount of self-effort uh, and, and will do it. Nothing less than the death of the Son of God can save you. So you're worse than you think. And the second thing the gospel says is you're much more loved than you think. The Son of God was willing to throw himself into the fiery furnace for you. You are his ultimate treasure. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And therefore, the gospel is more humbling. If you believe the gospel, it's a worldview that humbles you more and affirms you more at the very same time. It removes the self-centeredness because it humbles you. But it also removes the self-neediness because it loves you and affirms you. And if the Spirit of God takes that gospel, and it's not just abstraction, uh, abstract doctrines, but drives it into the very center of your heart, so it's a spiritual reality, you know what it does? It makes you a person who doesn't need a lot of thanks, doesn't need a lot of strokes, doesn't need a lot of affirmation. You're so content in who you are in Christ that you become a person who is much more able to give than to receive. You are always putting the needs of other people ahead of your own. You're serving each other. Now, what has that got to do with marriage? (laughs) Oh my goodness, what has that got to do with marriage? Come on, it's got everything to do with marriage. And here's what Paul is saying. Now we're very close to the premise. Paul is saying, when two people are filled with the Spirit and they become married, when two people are filled with the gospel... And the gospel has really reshaped the the way in which they think about themselves. And they get married. Here he gives a case study of what it might look like. And then he gives a case study of what a husband and wife do. And you know, some of you probably already noticed this, it's a very controversial case study. In our culture, what Paul says here is very controversial. He says what? He says, if two spirit-filled people get married, first of all, the wife should grant the husband leadership in the marriage and then the husband he says should respond by taking up Jesus model of leadership which is to die for the other person rather than abuse them or exploit them or even displease your wife and now what does that mean do you see what's going on here Paul is saying, look, well, first of all, let me, you, some of you are going to want me to defend that. And you know what? There's not time. I know that somebody's going to say, what a lame excuse. <laughs> but I've got other points to make. I can tell you this, that when my wife and I, in 1975, entered into marriage, we looked at this, and if you know me, and, or Kathy, you know this, that our temperaments are not inclined in either her temperament nor my temperament are inclined in any way to this model. Neither of us like at all. Neither of us believed or felt inclined or temperamentally uh, adapted to what the, the text was calling us to give. But we submitted to it. And over the years, and it did take years, by the way, <laughs> over the years, by doing that, we got in touch with things in our character that we never knew were there and that we really never would have found otherwise and which were inc- incredibly important to our growth. Now, that's all I'm going to say by way of defense. But what I'm going to show you, I want to point out two things, that whenever this idea of the wife giving the husband leadership in the marriage, two things that I like to point out that are in the text that are never pointed out, almost never, but they're very important. Do you see the premise of this, the premise of the wife giving the husband leadership is that both people are filled with the spirit and with the gospel. That's the premise. That's why why I stuck verse 21 in there. Or, let me be... (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. 
What Paul is saying is, women, don't you dare trust a man with your life. Don't you dare marry a man and give them a man this kind of trust unless his male ego has been permanently reshaped by the gospel of the cross. Don't trust yourself to a man unless he's filled with the spirit. Don't trust a man unless he says to you, I will give you anything I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to give anything in order to have you thrive. And I want to hear from you what you think that is. See, nothing less than that. It might, what Kathy, my wife, likes to say when she's talking about this. You know how they used to say to, to you know, constantly kids, boys and girls, don't do this at home. We're going to do it here in the studio, but don't do this at home. And Kathy was actually saying, Paul's actually saying, only do this at home. Only where you have two spirit-filled people should you really give yourselves to each other like this. So that's the model. First of all, the, it assumes, it's, the premise is two spirit-filled people. And there's one more thing that we usually are, is not pointed out here. And that is, what does this leadership actually look like concretely? And I want, to know, I want you to know, because it's not only not here in this text, but I've looked through the Bible and there's details are not given. See, people say, well, what does that mean? And uh, does it mean the husband makes all the decisions? Well, no, it doesn't say that in the Bible. Does it mean the husband makes the, makes the uh, decisions about money? No, it doesn't say. Well, where are the details? Well, the Bible is a book given to us to authoritatively guide us regardless of what century we live in, regardless of what culture we live in. And therefore, the Bible says, look, two spirit-filled people entering into marriage, each according to this, because of what the gospel has done, seeking to outdo the other person in service. Each one trying to outdo the other one in serving the other one rather than your own. Each one saying, your, what you need to thrive is more important than my emotional fulfillment. If two people get in there, you're going to fight over pleasing the other person. And those two people have to work out for themselves in agreement what that means. The Bible doesn't say, oh, it's got to be like this and this. And by the way, again, women, if you have a man that says, this is the way my father and my mother related, and this is the way it's going to be for us, there's not a, that's not a man whose uh, male ego has been reshaped by the cross. You know why? When the Bible doesn't give you those details and you say, well, the way in which it worked in my family, that's the way it's going to be, you're lifting your family pattern up to the level of Scripture? That's not honoring biblical authority. Your opinion is negotiable. Scripture is not. And the scripture says, this is the principle of leadership, but you work it out, then you work it out. And you work it out how? Each trying to outdo the other in serving and pleasing the other. So it doesn't have to be oppressive, but that's the premise. So the premise of this model of, of Christian marriage is the fullness of the spirit and the reality of the gospel in the center of your heart. Secondly, we have the purpose of marriage. Now, what is the purpose of marriage? Or another way to put it is a question. Why do people get married? Now, in ancient cultures, and today in traditional cultures, marriage is basically a business proposition. Essentially, you did not marry for love. You didn't marry you know, for, uh, to have romance and, and uh, emotional fulfillment. You got married in such a way that it helped your family's station and security in the world. That's what it was. In fact, today, in many parts of the world, that's what it is. And uh, because the family is everything, we'll get back to that. So the whole point is I'm going to marry whoever I can to help my family uh, uh, you know, status and, and, and security in the world. However, in our Western culture, 
Very, very different. You marry for love. You marry for your own individual fulfillment. You marry somebody who's going to make you feel good about yourself, who's giving you incredible uh, affection and romantic love and that you find completely fulfilling. The Bible says both of those approaches are wrong, reductionistic, probably very, very harmful in many ways. The Bible says that the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. See, it's right here. Look, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her radiant without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, listen, what is he talking about? Let's Let's think about the gospel for a second. You know, we sing a hymn that tells you what it's based on this. What is the, there's a hymn that goes like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her and for her life he died. Now that's the gospel. Jesus looks down from heaven and he sees that we're just shadows of ourselves, what we're supposed to be. He sees us ruined by the fall and our flaws and our self-centeredness. But he loves us. And he comes and he gives himself to us. And he dies on the cross. Uh, and he takes the punishment for our sins. And when we embrace him, he comes into our lives. But what does he do? Does he just bring forgiveness? No, 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 no. It tells you here. It tells you in Romans 8. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. What does that mean? Jesus is not in any way happy just to pardon you. If you love somebody, you don't want to see them uh, flawed, broken, you know, doing stupid things all the time, harming themselves and harming the people around. You don't want, you want to make them better. And so what does he do? He comes into our lives and he does what the theologians call sanctification, the gradual perfection more and more getting us to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That's the way the catechism puts it. Jesus comes into your life and he has a vision for your future glory and your future beauty. He says, I know what you could be. I was there at your creation. You're just a shadow of what you should be. And it's incredible what you're going to be. And through my blood and through my sacrifice and through my service, I'm going to get you there. He doesn't let you, if anybody who's a Christian knows that when Jesus comes into your life through the word and the spirit and through circumstances of life, he's constantly driving you to change, pushing you to repent and to change and to leave those things behind and to move forward and become more and more like him. Well, that's, what's that mean? What's that got to do with marriage? That's the model. See, here's what our model is. And I mean, I don't know most of you, but the fact is that because you're part of the culture, I can say this with some confidence. If you're looking for a spouse, you're probably looking for a finished product. You're probably looking for someone already, at least I have to say, if I put it in more superficial ways, beautiful. And uh, pulled together and accomplished and maybe got some money and, you know, you're looking for all that. That's not gospel reenactment. That's, that's the modern Western idea that the purpose of marriage is your individual fulfillment. Oh, no. Here's what we got. To fall in love with a vision for gospel reenactment as you look more deeply when one spirit-filled person of one sex finds another spirit-filled person of another sex and you start to get attracted to what God is doing in that person's life, the person that God's making that person become. I mean, you're supposed to, to fall in love with somebody 
in this understanding, this Christian understanding of marriage, is to, is to imagine yourself on the final day, the day of judgment, in which God destroys all death and all evil and suffering, and there's a new heavens and new earth, and everything wrong with you falls off, and everything deformed and distorted about you falls off, and you blossom into what you're supposed to be, and you become everything you're supposed to be. And to fall in love with somebody is to imagine yourself being there in that day and looking at that person and saying, I always knew you could be like that. I saw it in you. And through marriage, I have been part of what God is doing in you. See, to fall in love with somebody is to see what God is doing in that person and become committed to that person's future self. And then what is marriage? It means I'm going to do what Jesus did for me. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to uh, lay myself out. I'm going to commit myself to sacrificially serve this person I'm going to put their flourishing and their thriving ahead of my own individual needs, which is just what Jesus did. And therefore, I'm going to bring about, I'm going to be a vehicle for what God is doing in that person's life. That's the purpose of marriage. Now, you know how radically countercultural this is, I hope. Sociologists talk a lot about something called commodification. Here's definition out of the sociologist's glossary. Commodification is a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. An exchange relationship is what we would call a consumer relationship. If you have a consumer relationship with your grocery store, you have a relationship. You say hi to the people at the checkout counter. You feel like, hey, I know this place. But the fact is your relationship is based on what? If they're giving you good products at a good price. And if you find another grocery store, a little closer, better products, better price. Buy old grocery store, high new grocery store. Why? Because... Your relationship is not as important as the meeting of your individual needs. Your needs are more important than the relationship. If the needs aren't being met as well, you change relationships. That's a consumer relationship. That's an exchange relationship. But then there's what's called covenant relationships. And what the glossary was saying, or what the sociologist here was saying, was traditionally your relationships between husband and wife, between members of the family, were covenant relationships. So what's a covenant relationship? It's a relationship in which... The relationship is more important than your individual needs. What the, uh, what the sociologists are saying is that the model of marketplace relationships, consumer relationships, has actually spilled over in modern Western culture so that now our social relationships are essentially consumer relationships. And that means you come into marriage like this. I'll be the spouse I ought to be as long as you're being the spouse you ought to be. I'll meet your needs as long as you meet my needs. And if you stop meeting my needs, I'm not meeting your needs. Why should I do that? But see, the language of a covenant relationship is I will meet your needs even if you're not meeting my needs. That's what a covenant relationship is about. I'll be the spouse I ought to be even if you're not going to be the spouse that you should be. It's not romantic. It's covenant. It's committed. And... uh, And somebody says, but gee, wait a minute, that doesn't sound very fulfilling. Let me suggest something to you. There is nothing more fulfilling than two people being in a relationship. Two people being in a relationship. In which each one is not seeking personal fulfillment, but rather the thriving of the other. There is nothing more fulfilling than being in a relationship in which you're not putting your own fulfillment first. You know, Stanley Harwas, a social ethicist at Duke University, says that, you know, the Christian understanding is neither a traditional understanding that, you, you know, marriage is just basically a, an economic bargain, nor the modern understanding that you just got to find Mr. Right or Miss Right and everything in your life is going to come out fine. And he has this great spot in one of his books, a classic essay in which he says this, 
Harawa says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment. The assumption today is that there is somebody just right for you to marry and that if you, close, if you look close enough, you will find that right person. This fails to appreciate a simple fact, that you always marry the wrong person. We may never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if you first marry the right person that you know, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person ourselves after we have entered it. That means the primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you often find yourself married. That's an exaggeration, but not much. And therefore, the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. It's not romantic fulfillment, my needs have to be met. It's not a bargain, you know, it's just so I can find a, you know, my, you know, get a better status in, in my life. If you marry for either of those, and people do all the time, for either of those, you are actually headed for trouble. Instead, the purpose of marriage is to redo in somebody else's life what Jesus Christ is done, has done, is doing in your life. Now, somebody's going to say, rightly so, well, okay, if both of you are doing it right, if both of you are, are trying to outdo the other in service, okay, but it sounds to me like a covenant marriage, a covenant relationship could be a, a recipe for exploitation. And that leads us to our third point. One of the most radical things about marriage that I know, Christian marriage, I mean, the most radical things about Christian doctrine of marriage is that it says that it's not the greatest thing in the world. It's penultimate. It's not ultimate. Verse 32, Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He says, you know, all this stuff I've been talking about, husband, wife, basically it all points to something else. Oh, let me tell you why this is important. If marriage is an ultimate, if it's the ultimate thing in your life, it'll be a disaster. Look, in many traditional cultures, even today, marriage is, family is so ultimate, such an ultimate thing, that you have something, a horrible thing that has been called honor killings. Do you know what an honor killing is? You know, when a young woman or young man has sex outside of marriage, you know, disgraces the family, some relative kills them. Why? Because the honor and the cohesion of the family is everything. So it's an ultimate. Look at how, and what that leads to. Ah, you say, oh, well, we're not like that. We're modern Western people. We don't do that. But, oh, yes, we do, because we make marriage into an ultimate because we think that if I just find Mr. or Miss Wright, because of the personal fulfillment ethic, that marriage is about making me happy, basically, you make it an ultimate as well. Ernest Becker um, the, uh, uh, you probably, some of you have heard me read this before because it's so important. Ernest Becker was an atheist, a secular thinker, kind of a psychotherapist, mid part of the 20th century, won the Pulitzer Prize for a book. And he realized that because he didn't believe in God, and because most of his friends didn't believe in God, but they still needed a sense of transcendence, they still needed a sense of having real meaning in life, the idea that, you know, life is random and it's an accident, it was very difficult to live with. And he realized that people in a more secular society tend to load into romance and to marriage the hopes that in the past they used to only give to God and religion. And so he writes in a really fascinating passage, he says, we still need to feel heroic. We still need to know our life matters in the grand scheme of things. If we no longer have God, how are we to do this? 
One of the first ways, Becker said, that occurred was the romantic solution. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs, which used to be focused on God, now become focused on the individual. But the failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is a big part of modern humanity's frustration. No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. Listen, if God isn't the most important thing in your life, and the one thing that you probably most need is some other beautiful, great person to love you, and that person's love is the most important thing in your life, you will crush that person under the expectations of your heart. Nobody can live up to that. That's what Ernest Becker is saying. He says, no human relationship can possibly bear that burden. However much we may idealize and idolize the love partner, he or she inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. What is it we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults, our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human romantic love cannot give you that. But we seek it. But if it's an ultimate, you know, it's devastating. Because when they put that person in that position, you know, the Righteous Brothers years ago, remember that song, you know, without you, baby, what good am I? You know, there's a million songs like that. If it wasn't for you, you love me and there's really not. You know, the fact is we do believe that. If you really, really fall radically in love with somebody, you know, you might even believe in God, but it's an abstraction. That person's love is what makes you feel good about yourself, and that is an absolute disaster. No human being can be your savior. They're going to let you down. So what does the Bible say? The Bible says you must understand that marriage, even great marriage, even the very best marriage, is pointing to something beyond itself, to which even the best marriage must be subordinate, of which... Even the best marriage is nothing but a a foretaste. What is it? It's the spousal love of Jesus Christ. What do you mean spousal love? Well, let me recapitulate for you. Jesus Christ came to his own, but his own received him not. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had a few of his disciples he was about to die for. Remember, and he said, I'm just going to ask you one thing. Please stay awake. This is my hour of greatest need. Just please stay awake. And they went to sleep. So he looked into the heart of us, his bride, the people he came to love and to, and to save and to cherish. He looked into our heart and he saw self-centeredness and he saw cluelessness. And he died for us anyway. You know, the very people he was dying for and coming to love crucified him. But what did he do? In the greatest act of spousal love in the history of the world, he stayed. He looked at you and he stayed. And this is why, if you've taken that into your heart, you can do this. When your spouse is not being what the spouse ought to be, you can say, you're not being the spouse you ought to be, but I'm going to be the spouse I'm going to, I should be. I'm going to forgive you. You know why? I can. Because my ultimate spouse, Jesus Christ, I wronged him, and yet he loved me, and he forgave me. And because, actually, his love is more important than your love, now I can love you well. See, if your love was the most important thing in my life and you were letting me down the way you are right now, I'd either be scratching your eyes out or I'd be out of here. But because, because he has demoted you, because he has made my marriage penultimate, I can love you really well. 
I can forgive you, I can cover because Jesus forgave you. Well, you say, but that means what you mean? It's only one way? You mean you can just let that other person, you just stay there and you do whatever, no matter what the person does, you just can, no, why? Do you think that's, is that the loving thing to do? Is it ever loving to let somebody sin against you? Is it the best thing for, your, for that person? No. And Jesus, of course, doesn't let you go. He sanctifies you. He, 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 you know, he will never let you go until you become the person you ought to be. And so you do lay down boundaries in a, in a marriage. And you do tell the truth. And you do confront all that stuff. But now you're able to. Because the spousal love of Jesus Christ, if and only if it's the ultimate thing in your life, then you can speak the truth in love. Then you can be in a covenant relationship that's... Then you can be faithful to somebody who's not being good to you. At the same time, not be abused and exploited. You'll set down the boundaries. You'll still love. You'll still forgive. You'll do for the person what Jesus did for you. Now think, lastly, end. Some of you are too unhappy about not being married. Probably because you think, if only I was married, then I'd be happy. Look You're looking at probably the most happily married person I know. It's not enough. Being happily married does not help you face things the way you think it will. It's not enough. It doesn't fill up the deepest part of your heart. It won't help you face death. It doesn't really help in the end. As great as it is, the one spouse whose love can really fill your heart and give you what you really want awaits you if you believe in him. Some of you are too afraid of being married. You're afraid of being let down. Well, only if Jesus isn't central to your life can marriage be deadly. And if he is, then give it a shot. Number three, some of you are in unhappy marriages. And sometimes you're probably, maybe you're thinking, if only my spouse was everything he or she ought to be, then everything would be fine. No, 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 it doesn't work like that. The one spouse that you need is available. And if he is central to your life, then you'll be able to handle an unhappy marriage a lot better than you are right now. And lastly, one of the reasons I think that people tend to move out of cities when they start to have children is because of the romantic ideal. They say, oh, it's been a lot of fun to be here in the city, but you certainly want to raise a family here. You know why? I kind of think because a lot of people still have that designer ideal for what marriage and romance and family is about. We're going to have a designer marriage, a perfect marriage. We're going to have perfect children. We're going to have a perfect home. We're going to have a perfect, everything's going to be perfect. The city's messy. Marriage is about rehabilitation. That's what the whole text is about. With the resources of Jesus Christ. And when you realize that, it doesn't seem so weird to be in a city because the city is about rehabilitation. Dealing with, you know, helping the schools be better and rehabbing houses for poor people and, and, and healing and redeeming and working on the city the way you're healing and redeeming working on your, your, your uh, family. It doesn't seem quite as weird then, does it? Once you understand the gospel understanding of marriage to raise your family in this city. With his own blood he bought you and for your life he died. You're his bride. Now, take his spousal love. Changes 
is not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, Thy hand hath provided. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. During our last broadcast, we talked about how committing the act of adultery and divorce were misinterpreted and what God had really meant concerning these two topics. Jesus said that adultery is not only the physical act itself, but to look upon another person with lustful intent is also considered adultery. He talked strongly about getting rid of certain body parts that causes you to sin rather than having your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now regarding the topic of divorce, the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time thought that as long as you gave a certificate of divorce to your wife, then divorce was permissible. However, Jesus taught that the bringing together of a husband and wife was God's will and no one is allowed to separate this union. Today we will discuss the topic of giving oaths. Let us look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. A person who gives an oath usually gives an oath to prove that they are serious about their promises. When giving an oath, they usually use someone else's name as a witness to their testimony. That is why most people say, I swear by heaven or I swear to God. The oath or swearing mentioned in the Bible is an oath that gave up God's name as a key witness. And when anyone swears to God and does not follow through on their promise, God can severely punish them. The third commandment in the Ten Commandments states, You shall not take the name of your God in vain. This also includes taking an oath or swearing in God's name. If a person falsely swears in God's name, it is dragging the holy and righteous name of our God through the mud. This is why in the Old Testament of the Bible, when you look at a scripture that talks about oaths, it says to not swear falsely, and if you are planning to promise God something, then you must follow through on that promise. Leviticus chapter 19 states, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. 
I am the Lord. Numbers chapter 30 states, If a man promises a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. However, the Sadducees and the Pharisees did not acknowledge the whole focal point of the message on oaths given. They were focused on the law. For instance, what kind of oath is okay to not follow through on, and what are the oaths that one has to keep? They figured that if a person had spoken an oath in God's name, the person had to honor that oath. However, if a person did not swear in God's name, there was nothing that could bind them to that oath. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus accuses the Sadducees and the Pharisees of this very thing in verses 16 through 22. Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altars swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Even though the Sadducees and the Pharisees felt that if anyone swore by the temple, it was nothing, but by swearing by the gold, you were bound by the oath. Jesus says that the temple that the gold has been placed on is more important. Jesus calls them blind guides and corrected them on their foolish thinking. So if we are to agree with their thinking, we would be saying that only the gold in the temple is God's and the temple itself is not God's. This means the sacrifice on the altar is God's, but the altar itself is not. This is a very ridiculous reasoning indeed, for it is saying that the foundation that was laid for the offering is not important. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says most definitely not to swear anything in God's name. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. For if you swear falsely under God's name and you lie, then it truly comes from Satan. Another book in the Bible that talks about oaths is in James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. For the chosen people of God, 
They also need to be like God in their actions to be honest and righteous in His sight. Whatever we say, we say it in front of God anyway, and therefore do not need to swear. We who are in Christ should live as Christ did, in truth. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I ask you, are you in Christ? If you are, then you need to live in truth and righteousness. Today, we talked about oaths, as taught by Christ on the Sermon on the Mount. For our next program, we will discuss the topic of retribution. I hope that all of you live in truth and righteousness in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Today, discussing the results of our survey and the purpose of Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, there is one more thing I would like to discuss with you. We, as a gospel ministry, have a vision to continue our mission with the next generation. One of the ways we plan to do this is through our children's program. I know that there are some of you out there that would like to raise your children in the Word of God but do not know how and where to begin. I too am concerned about how I will raise my future children as children of God. That is why our ministry has developed the children's program and will continue to develop it even further next year. The children's program is in English, so I hope that all of you will take the time to listen to that program as well. The program includes participation by our listeners' children who read scriptures from the Bible, have praise time where children can learn to sing praise songs, story time that teaches our children Christian values through a dramatic story, and prayer time where we teach our children how to pray. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to listen to the children's program. I hope that this program can spread throughout our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Tomorrow will be the first day of the new year 2017. We praise our faithful God who has led us throughout the past year. I hope that our faithful God will continue to lead us again in the coming year as we grow in Christ. May God bless your family with prosperity, good health, and happiness in the new year. See you next year. If you were a road, I'd learn every turn to lie. Could find my way with my